Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Who is Jesus? Last week we began to look at the problem these people, and by extension, all of them had and are forced to face. They came up with four theories. He is a good man, he is a deceiver, he is demon-possessed, or he is the Christ. As I said last week, there are four of them. One impossible, two improbable, and one, I think, inescapable. Last week, I postulated that the first theory was simply impossible. Anyone who made the claims of deity that Jesus made cannot be just a good man because of the things that he claimed about himself. He actually claimed to be God. We will look at the final three claims this morning. I said the first option was impossible, and the next two, I think, are highly improbable, and the last one is inescapable. Look at verse 12 with me. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. It says in verse 12 that he leads the people astray, or we could just as easily translate that, that he deceives the people. The two improbable options are Christ is a deceiver or Christ is insane or demon-possessed. One of them is in the second half of verse 12 where the people say he deceives the people. The other one is down in verse 20 where they say you are demon-possessed. Of course, that's just another way of saying you're insane, you're deranged, you're a lunatic. Now, as much as those two seem to differ, they're basically the same theory because what they are saying is that he basically just fooled the people. In one case, he fooled himself too. If he was self-deranged, he was also self-deluded. In the other case, he was just wicked because he knew what was going on and he deceived the people on purpose. In either case, the theory is he wasn't just a good man, but rather he was someone who deceived the people wittingly or unwittingly into thinking that he was God. What are the problems with that theory? The problem is, does that theory square with what we know about his life? The guards come back to the leader and they said, why didn't you arrest him? You know he's a fool. You know he's a deceiver. You know he's a lunatic. You know that, don't you? We will see later in the chapter that they are just blown away with the wisdom and teaching of Jesus. They unabashedly admit to the ones who sent them, I'm sorry, that theory just doesn't hold water. I love the King Jimmy here. It says, never a man spake like this man. What they are saying is, this man's life and his teachings are sublime. This is not the work of a lunatic. This is not the teachings of a deceiver. Look at his teaching for a minute. The great English writer G.K. Chesterton said, If you found a key lying around in your yard and you picked it up and you trotted it out on a number of locks, and on one of the locks it opened it perfectly, what would you assume? Though it could be a huge coincidence, you would most likely assume the most rational explanation is that it was made by the locksmith who made it for that particular lock. 
The key was designed for the lock. Now here you get the teachings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, and all of his other teachings. Here you have teachings that were given originally in a pre-modern Middle Eastern society thousands of years ago. Yet they have found to have such universal validity that in every century, some of the greatest and ablest minds have found it fulfilling and satisfying. It would sure seem like that his teachings fits all of the, answering all the important questions of life. Now, lots of people have claimed to be God. Lots of people have claimed to be perfect. Lots of people have claimed to be divine. But not one of them has gotten away with it. Every one of them has been dismissed as a fool or as an evil person. Jesus was different. Why? Because the people who lived closest to him were utterly and completely convinced he was who he claimed to be. That's why they lived and ultimately died for him. Nobody was around at that time to disprove the claims of Jesus. Why? Because they saw what we can see if we just read the Bible. If you read the New Testament, you will see the same thing. And it is complete, absolute, personal, and moral beauty. When you read about him, he combined virtues nobody else ever combined. There is tenderness without any weakness. There is strength without any harshness. There is humility without any lack of confidence. There is holiness and unbending conviction without any lack of approachability. Children crowded around him, and yet tax collectors and prostitutes couldn't help but be drawn to him. Like moths drawn to a flame on a pitch black night, there was just something about Jesus that attracted everyone. Even the people who hated him and ended up killing him still had to come to see for themselves the things he was both doing and teaching. There is unhesitating authority, yet with no self-assertion. There is tremendous courage, yet with the utmost sensitivity and tenderness of spirit. He upbraids the self-important ones, yet he is so winsome and attentive towards the broken. That's why P.T. Forsyth in one place says, This is God, and if God be not thus, he is less than the God we crave for. If you read about Jesus in the Bible and you say, That's not God. What is Forsyth saying? He is saying, If that's not God, then the God you know of is less than the God I crave and the world needs. What was it Jesus had that nobody else ever had who claimed to be God? What was it that convinced the people who lived with him that he was God? Just like when you put a filter over your eyes in order to look at the sun during an eclipse, the apostles came to realize they were looking through the filter of human nature right into the essence of God Almighty. That's why they're always going around the Bible saying, Who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? 
Who is this man? The answer is, as insane as it may seem, it is less insane than the alternatives. This is the Christ. This is the Son of the living God. Sadly, it was the second view of Jesus that was a deceiver that eventually prevailed among the majority of the Jewish people. Some people watching me today may be thinking, perhaps Jesus was crazy or demon-possessed. But before you jump too quickly at that explanation, however, you need to ask whether the total character of Jesus as we know it bears out that speculation. Did he act like someone who was crazy? Did he speak like one suffering from megalomania? It's hard to read the Gospels and be satisfied with that explanation. Rather, it's hard to escape the conclusion that Jesus was actually the sanest man who ever lived. He spoke with quiet authority, and yet he always seemed in control of the situation. He was never surprised or rattled. He just does not seem to fit easy into the classifications we try to push him into. In the first place, if Jesus really was a deceiver, he was certainly the best deceiver who has ever lived. Jesus claimed to be God, but we must remember this claim was not made in a Greek or Roman environment where the idea of many gods or even half-gods was acceptable. It was made at the heart of monotheistic Judaism. Nowhere else in the ancient world could one find such a strict belief in one God, but this belief was present during that time in Judea. As a matter of fact, the Jews were ridiculed for it. At times they were even persecuted. Nevertheless, they stuck to this doctrine and were even fanatical in its defense. It was in this hostile theological climate that Christ made these claims. What happened? The remarkable thing is that he got people to believe in him. Lots of people. Men and women. Peasants and sophisticates. Priests and even eventually members of his own family. So if Jesus was a deceiver, he was at least a good one. No strike that. He was the best one who has ever lived. On the other hand, if Jesus was a deceiver, he was also the worst deceiver so much that he could be termed a devil if he were not truly God. Think that through clearly. Jesus did not merely say, I am God, and then let it go at that. He said, I am God, and I have come to save fallen humanity, and I am the only means of salvation. And so you must trust me and me only with your life and with your future. Jesus taught that God was holy and we are barred from him because we are not holy. Our sin is the great barrier between ourselves and God. We cannot come into God's presence simply on our own merits. Moreover, Jesus taught that he had come to do something about that problem. He would die for our sin and he, and he alone, would bear our punishment. The result of that sacrifice is that everyone who trusts in him will be saved. This is good news. This is even great news. But only if it's true. If it is not true, 
then we are in the words of the Apostle Paul, of all men most miserable. And Jesus Christ should be hated as a fiend from hell. If it is not true, Jesus has condemned millions. He has sent generations of gullible followers to a hopeless eternity. Now let's turn our attention to what I think is the inescapable option, and that is that Jesus is the Christ. As I said earlier, as insane as that sounds, the other options are even more insane. That has always been the argument. The evidence is very telling, but this is where it brings us this morning. Here is where we have to look at our hearts. You know and I know that a lack of evidence can destroy faith, but strong evidence cannot make faith. Can I say that again? Poor evidence can destroy faith, but strong evidence cannot make faith. I'll just tell you why. There are a lot of things out there that we're doing, and we've seen the scientific evidence that it is bad for us. There are things you're doing, there are things you're eating, there are practices that you have been doing that you know are bad for you. You've seen the proof. You've seen the evidence. It's overwhelming. Yet, you won't trust yourself to that. It takes more than reason, doesn't it? It takes more than evidence. The way the human heart works is it's not enough to say, well, just show me the evidence and I'll do it. That's not true in any area of life. We say, show me the evidence that eating 40 Krispy Kremes a day will lead to an early heart attack. They show us the evidence, and what do we do? Well, one of these years, I'll need to start getting on a diet. Poor evidence can destroy faith, but strong evidence does not make it. You have to let the truth address you. You have to let the truth argue with you. You have to let the truth deal with you personally. God says in Isaiah 55, 8, in speaking to men, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is true. And it can be seen by comparing the teaching and views of the world with God's teaching on all the great spiritual issues. Take the doctrine of God himself. What does the world think about God? Well, the world has differing views. Some of them have been cited by English writer and Bible translator J.B. Phillips in his book, Your God is Too Small. He writes, there is God the policeman, God the parental hangover, the grand old man, God the managing director, and so on. If we turn to books of philosophy, we find definitions that are more carefully constructed, but are really no better. He is God the great cosmic force, or God the prime mover. In modern times, he's the author of the Big Bang of the Expanding Universe. Basic to all these ideas, however, is the thought that God is not particularly involved in life now, or that if he is, he is not really righteous or fair in the way that he goes about it. How different this is from the Christian view. According to the teachings of Jesus Christ, God is the holy and sovereign God of eternity and all history. He planned the world from before creation. He brought each thing into being according to a perfect plan. He sustains life now, and he guides history. He came in the person of his son to redeem fallen humanity. 
He constantly intervenes to save men and women as an expression of his grace. And moreover, he will one day conduct a righteous and a final judgment. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Or at least I hope you're on your way to believing that. Who is Jesus Christ? The one thing you must not do is try to escape that question. Some try to escape the question by simply running away or not thinking about it. If you have been doing that, let me challenge you to be entirely honest with yourself on this most important of questions. Now, you will not want to believe in Christ without evidence, but at least consider the evidence. Read one of the Gospels. Read it carefully. Read it critically. And ask yourself, is Jesus deluded? Is he a deceiver? Or is he God? And before you read, ask God to help you understand what was written. Now finally, you may be one who is already intellectually convinced of the truth about Christ's claims, yet you have not committed yourself to him, and thus you have not come to know him personally. If you are in this position, you should know that your position is untenable. Do not delay. Honesty demands a response, and divine love is drawing you to Christ. You can just say something simple. Jesus, I have tried to go my own way until this time. I have tried to avoid you. I was wrong, and I will do it no longer. From now on, I accept your death on my behalf. I will now be your follower. It's that simple. And as always, no matter where on the spectrum you are, please always feel free anytime you want to talk with me. If someone ever wants to talk to me about being saved, they always move to the top of my agenda. Everything in my life is subservient to that. Look at verse 13. Yet no one who was speaking openly of him for the fear of the Jews. In verse 13, we see that despite the unparalleled teaching of Christ and the unquestionable miracles... People were afraid to speak openly about him because they were afraid of the Jews. I wonder if sometimes we aren't guilty of the same thing. Do we allow what others may think of us to shut, cause us to shut our mouths and to hide our lights under a bushel? I realize sometimes that can be tempting because when people think of what a Christian is today, what they have seen on TV is almost always the polar opposite of true Christianity. And the media always chooses the worst representation of Christians for a reason. They also have an agenda. Actually, many times people interview those representing the Christian faith. Those people aren't even Christians. And so we get grouped with a lunatic fringe of the faith. We get grouped with the Catholic priests who are pedophiles. Or the Westboro Baptist members who carry signs proclaiming God is delighted to send people to hell. That is just unfair. For instance, as you know, I'm also a mailman. When someone goes on a shooting spree, it is often said the individual went postal. Did you know that since 1926 there have been 37 million people that have worked for the post office? And only 11 of those 37 million people 
actually went postal in the entire history of the post office. And yet people equate being crazy with being postal. But most post office people are like me and Shane and Lisa Hawthorne and aren't crazy. Well, actually, this may not have been all that great of an example <laughs> now that I've thought it through. But the point I was making was we can't allow what others think about us to determine how we live our lives. Listen to this letter that one man wrote to himself. Dear fear of what others think, I'm sick of you and it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times. But seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. We're breaking up. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, or more important than I am. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people that I don't know that well, all in the hope they will like me and praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder saying, like me, like me, like me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I can never stop acting. The spotlight's always on, and I'm center stage, and I better keep dancing, posturing, and mugging for the camera, or else the spotlight will move and I'll dissolve into a little, meaningless puddle on the ground, just like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the ones that live only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. And all this is especially evil, because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet and wait patiently for the voice of God who made me and the Savior who died for me in his eyes, it turns out that he really does love me. When I find my true identity in Christ, then you turn back into the tiny, yapping little dog that you are. So goodbye, fear of what others may think. You and I are done. Or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. Verse 14, please. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? If you remember back in John chapter 2, the first time Jesus went to Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. The people are like, who are you? You act like you own this temple. To, Jesus, to which Jesus could have replied, own the temple, honey, I am the temple. However, this time he's teaching in the temple. That's always the way it is, by the way. Before Jesus can impart his word effectively to me, there must first be a cleansing within me. The money changers must be driven out and the cattles all chased away. This is why as you study his word with us corporately and in your own devotions personally, it's always good to say, Lord, before I begin reading, please search my heart. Show me that which needs to be confessed. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, declared the psalmist. Why? Because our Father won't allow us to live in sin that will hurt both us and those around us. Consequently, he can say to us, I'm going to break communication with you, not because I'm angry with you or because I'm giving up on you, but because something's amiss within you that will bring pain into your life and problems into the lives of those around you. 
So when your prayers aren't being answered or when God's word doesn't seem to speak to you, call upon me. Let me come in and cleanse the temple and then I will teach. Then you will hear my voice. I think too many of us maybe minimize the importance of quietly waiting on the Lord and asking him to search our hearts. Before teaching, there must be cleansing. We see in the next verse there in 15 that the people were just blown away by the teachings of Jesus. Now we realize from these verses that so long as Jesus was hidden from the crowds as he was for the first half of the feast, the questions of the people concerned him personally. However, when he suddenly appeared and began to teach, the questions shifted from who he was to what he was saying. These were marvelous teachings. The people had never heard anything like them. They were coming from one who had never received formal training in the rabbinical schools. So, where did he get his teaching? Hidden within their question was the deeper question as to whether anything so new and radical could actually be trusted. We see the importance of this question when we realize that many people ask it today when they hear true Christian teaching for the first time. Can I trust what this is saying? Matthew records for us at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he said the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Now, character and doctrine, of course, go together. It would be foolish to trust the teachings of someone who was a liar. But the Jews were amazed at what he taught because he did not have any credentials from their approved schools. But since he lacked the proper accreditation, his enemy said that his teachings were nothing but private opinions and therefore not worth much. It's often been said that Jesus taught with authority, while the scribes and Pharisees taught from authorities, quoting all the famous rabbis. You see, the typical way of teaching back then by the rabbis was that no one would make a stand on anything. They would say, Rabbi Shimei says this about this passage, or Rabbi Hillel says this about that passage. No one would challenge anything. And they realized this guy was not a product of any of those schools. And it was most likely the indignant and hostile Jewish authorities who continually felt threatened by Jesus. These were probably the ones who led the attack on him by questioning his credentials. They exclaimed, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, is it wrong for a preacher to be highly educated? Of course not. One of my favorite Christian intellectuals is John Lennox, who has three separate doctorates in mathematics, philosophy, and bioethics. I mean, this guy has more degrees than a thermometer, and so higher education is not sinful. This cat has three doctorates. I don't want to come across as arrogant or boastful, but I also have three. College credits. <laughs> I hope that doesn't make you feel intimidated being around me now. I'm just one of you. At the time Jesus was ministering, there were at least 30 seminaries in and around Jerusalem, and Jesus had a degree from none of them. 
So consequently, when the Jewish leaders heard him speak, they wondered where he garnered such insight. The same thing would later be said of his followers, for when Peter and John spoke in Acts chapter 4, it is said the Jews marveled at their boldness. And then it says, and they realized they had been with Jesus. And that's the key. You see, it's not what you know primarily. It's who you know that counts. And if you've been hanging out with Jesus, if you've logged in some morning time with him, some afternoon breaks in his word, or some evening time of contemplation, even if you are unlearned and ignorant according to the world scholastic system, people will also marvel at you. So as we finish up this morning, I hope all of us have come to realize we have to make a decision concerning who Jesus is. To not make a choice is a choice against him. Imagine two flies in a stall living with a cow. They say, let's have a discussion. What do we want to do with this cow? What are we to make of this cow? What do you like to think of this cow as being? Listen, if there is a cow, it doesn't matter what they think about the cow. The cow is so much greater than the flies. It's the job of the flies to adapt to the reality of the cow. It's ridiculous for the flies to sit there and say, what do you think of the cow? How do you like to think about the cow? If there is a cow, that's a ridiculous discussion. Friends, I know there's some of you out there saying, I already know what I believe about sex. I already know what I believe about men and women's roles and gender. I already know what I believe about my needs. I already know what I believe about my desires. And if Jesus Christ does not fit into those things, then I'm gone. You know what you've done? If Jesus is who he says he is, who cares about your needs and your opinions? Do you see how silly that is? What are we to make of Christ? The far more important question is, what is Christ to make of us? Therefore, if you go out with this attitude, you've already assumed he is wrong before you even begin your investigation. You're assumed he can't be God, because if you say, look, I don't want to hear I have to stop this, or I don't want to hear I have to change that, I don't want to hear that. If he doesn't fit in, then I'm out of here. And you've assumed he isn't who he truly says that he is. Because if he is who he says he is, who cares what you or I think? There is an ultimate reality that every one of us has to adapt to. And unless we are thinking biblically, it doesn't matter what we think of him. It only matters what he thinks of us. Drive that point home today, Lord. Everyone within the sound of my voice in here and on video and everyone this will come in contact with, let us realize, Lord, this is not only the most important question in life, it's really the only question in life that has eternal significance. Who are you? Reveal yourself to us and whatever thing you need to be in each of our hearts, whether it's a savior, a sanctifier, or an encourager. Oh, God, you are all those things. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.